podcaster, I hardly know her. (laughs) Welcome to the I Hardly Know Her podcast, hosted by me, Megan McCaleb. If there's one thing I've learned in this life, it's that I still have a lot to learn. This podcast is your invitation to expand your understanding on all sorts of topics and shake things up a little bit. Listen in and learn something new from the stories, professional insights, and a wide range of expertise shared by me and my incredible guests. And remember, my friends, you don't have to be a big deal to do big things. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the I Hardly Know Her podcast. Today's guest is someone I've been watching for a while. I've actually known her since high school times. Um, And, you know, we kind of just watch people peripherally, I think, uh, touch points that are honestly really a kind of a cool part of having social media. And in my own journey and different life transitions I've gone through, a lot of the work of today's guest has really caught my attention because it would have been really helpful. It's, you know, it's one of the things to be like, this would have been nice to know yesterday. Uh, the things that could be really advantageous to us. Um, and it's really inspiring to see the progress that she made in tackling such a big topic and creating a business space on the subject of sex therapy. So our guest today is Dr. Cami Hurst. She's a licensed therapist and certified sex therapist in Meridian, Idaho. She operates a private practice offering therapy, coaching, and online small group education. Um, she is a founder and a current president of the Idaho Association of Sexual Health Professionals. Um, and I'm really excited. So she has some other events and things that we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, but I want to just jump right into it. Welcome to the show, Cami. Thank you so much for joining me. Like Ooh. when we knew each other in high school, would you have thought Cami Rogers is going to end up being a sex therapist? Probably would have been. <laughs> no. Very low on my list of things I would have guessed. Right. And yet, although yeah, if you would have asked me then, because I wouldn't have known better to ask me modern day, I think what I love is seeing people doing the things that we we think is unexpected. Like yeah. there's so much projecting that I think we do. And yet it's the people that are like doing different kinds of work that really like it makes even more sense to me to have seen you go through this journey. But yeah, I mean, to your point, if if we had talked about this in high school, we both would have been like, <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. Right. Right. <laughs> but here we both so, are. Yeah, exactly. Here we are. And I just couldn't wait to um, be able to share your message with people because I, I think there's probably a lot of layers. So I can't wait to have you actually like unpack some of the things like what drew you into this space? Why is it so important? Um, and, I, and I'm curious to see, too, like, how is it um, relevant for people with the individual, like what we're needing to bring as an individual so that we can bring these types of things into a healthy partnership. I mean, there's Mm. all sorts of goodies. So let's start with first things first, like what sent you onto this, this quest of becoming an expert in this field? Right. (laughs) Uh, I think it was desperation, right? Um, so I, uh, I always knew I wanted to do some type of therapy. So, you know, my undergrad, when I headed to um, college, I knew I wanted to do some type of therapy. I don't even know if you remember this, but in high school, we had this uh, group. I think you, were you a peer mediator with us? I feel like maybe for a hot minute. 
Okay. I feel so like I dabbled in a lot program. of things. Yeah. yeah. They did this program in high school where they um, trained some of us in mediation and it was amazing. I loved it. I loved the training. I loved the skills. And I really loved being able to be that like facilitator, that um, non-judgmental third party. Like that was my first taste of it. Yeah. And so went to college, um, set myself up for a position to do therapy. Meanwhile, I got married. And I remember I was at a university that was not encouraging women to go into graduate programs. So mm -hmm. I was wanting to apply for the marriage and family therapy program while I was young at college. And it just, I got the message that it was too hard. And what if you get pregnant? And, you know, mm -hmm. women really, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we, we only accept a few women. And I got the message that it was too hard and mm -hmm. I didn't apply. And, um, so I had my children and as soon as somewhere in there, I realized I am going back to school at yeah. some point. And um, when my youngest uh, went back to school, I was like, all right, I'm going to go get my master's marriage and family therapy. And I knew at that point it needed, my long-term goal was sex therapy. It wasn't just couples counseling. Mm -hmm. Um, some sex therapists are in this space because, um, it's a space of like, it came easy and they were enjoying it. I'm in this space because I've had to fight for all of the gains I've made, you know, mm. having been raised in just a sexually silent school district, a sexually silent home, a sexually silent home church. Um, it was not a smooth transition for me. Mm. And so uh, I had to do a lot of work on my own. And there was just like one point um I read some cheesy quote on Facebook that says something like, uh, you've been given this mountain to show people it can be moved. And I just started bawling and I'm like, Aww. okay, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, just to show that it's possible to um, take something that was difficult and make it a strength or to learn something new, especially in the sexual uh, health arena um, growing up in a rural area that just didn't mm. prioritize sexual health education. I was like, okay, I think I'm doing this. Yeah, so good. Okay. <laughs> and so just that quickly, you're like, boom, all right, this is the path. So tell me a little bit about like, how did you, how did you know, even as you started looking at like the family, like the couples and family general dynamic, seeing where that specific need was, was that something that was really obvious or that like was in like lists like how did you hone in on such a specific focus um i think the focus started and then i found the path to it it wasn't that i went okay. into marriage and family therapy and then i thought hey my next step is going to be sex therapy i entered right. knowing i need to find a path to sex therapy yeah and so that that was a master's in marriage and family therapy a postgraduate certificate in sex therapy and then a phd in clinical sexology was my education. Um, and the way I knew that was the path was I wasn't finding any help here in Idaho. So, you know, you think, okay, something is wrong, whether it's sexual pain, whether it's low desire, whether it's um, all sorts of things that we didn't mm. know could happen to us in a relationship. Mm. I went first to my OB and there was no help there. And mm. I was really disappointed. <laughs> So then yeah. I went to a general therapist. There was no help there. I was really disappointed. Um, and it wasn't until I found a sex therapist who could kind of have these conversations, 
who gave me an excellent education. And I'm like, this is so doable, but nobody knows who to go to. Because yeah. the reality of the situation is OBGYNs are only required to take a nine hour seminar on sexual dysfunction. They do oh. not have the training we're hoping that they would have. Marriage mm -hmm. and family therapists are only required to have one sexual health and it's just human sexuality course. All mm. other therapists are not required to have a human sexuality course. And so we think there are these experts out there who are going to help us and they are not trained. Oof. And because I faced those obstacles, I was like, we need some resources um, and I'm happy to be one. And so that kind of gave me the direction when I decided to um, jump back into my own life after having kids. Yeah. Okay. So the need must be tremendous. I mean, yeah. it's got to be. Tell me more about like, what are the things that people are experiencing that maybe they, do people know to even start looking for help? Like what are some of the pain points or things that are happening that either people are accepting because they don't know that it's a problem. They just think maybe it's unique to them. I mean, I don't yeah. even know where to start opening up. That, no, there's that a lot. You know, so, Cause what are, what are the, yeah, help me out. <laughs> so yeah, we can go through the most common sexual dysfunctions and one of them is sexual pain, which can have up to like a dozen sources and it can be really difficult to treat. Um, I mean, there can be vaginismus or endometriosis or vulvodynia or, you know, so many things can cause pain with penetration. That's one thing that in that case, best course of treatment is to work with a sex therapist and a pelvic floor physical therapist. Some people don't even know those exist. Mm -hmm. um, then Another common area is um, anorgasmia. So 30% of adult women haven't figured out how to have an orgasm sexually. Oh, mercy. Only 1% are physically unable, and it's usually from a spinal cord issue. And so we've got a lot of women walking around with emotional pain or sexual pain, you know, physical, who don't know who to go to or talk to about it, mm -hmm. and maybe feel shamed because our culture is so bold about sexuality. Um, mm. that you can feel really alone really quick. Mm -hmm. Um, a lack of desire is another, the, I don't, I just don't want it. What am I supposed to do about it? And that can come from a whole host of biological, psychological, sociological, or relationship issues. Mm. Uh, and, and then, um, a big one, because I also see couples is desire discrepancy where we just don't line up. You know, they want mm. this, I want this. And so now we have like a gridlock issue in the relationship. Um, and it's not just women. I've worked with men who have orgasm issues. I've worked with men who are really concerned about um, the speed or the stamina, which they have. And I really like those cases because often just education can really clean this up. Um, mm. So that's maybe like the fifth source I find is just clearing up misinformation that we absorbed through either what we watch or what we see or what we read or what we hear. Yeah. And there's nothing combating it. So right now, I think it's like only 17 states in the United States are required to provide medically accurate sex ed. Idaho is not one of them. Mm, Idaho does Idaho does not have to give medically accurate sexual education. 
And Oof. so we don't have families or the school system or churches reinforcing um, sexual education from a health point of view. Yeah, so that's, that's so frustrating. That is so incredibly frustrating. It's so frustrating. Um, yes. Uh, and that's our show. We're landing on frustration. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. We're not going to leave you hanging there. So, I mean, I'm hearing all these different things that people are experiencing these different challenges. It's obviously if we're having, I, I mean, maybe it's not obvious if we're having challenges with our physicality, like seeing things pattern for us in society and not feeling like we're doing things the right way and all the different shame and projections and all the different things. It definitely, they ebb and flow between the physical and the emotional. I mean, that's got to all tie in, right? And then it just feels like it would have a ripple effect of other things feeling out of alignment. If I'm not feeling like I'm having my needs met as a woman or as a partner or the whatever, like I feel like that just has a, a negative impact on a lot of other areas that may not even seem directly connected. Is yeah. that no, right? No, you're totally right. Yeah, you're totally right. So the research, um, Barry, Barry, McCarthy, Barry McCarthy is a little bit of a hero of mine. He did this research and found that for long-term couples, couples in a long-term relationship, if the sex is going well, it adds about 20% to the relationship where they're like, yeah, that piece mm. works and the parenting piece works and the financial piece works. And, you know, it's 20% of the pie. But when sex is not going well, it has an 80% drain on the relationship, not a 20% drain, an 80% drain on the relationship. And so when you find someone and the sex is going well, that's not the only reason you should commit to being in a relationship. That's 20% reason. But if you're with a partner and the sex is not going well, that's a good reason to not continue in the relationship mm. because it's an 80% drain. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So how can people, if they're hearing this for the first time and they're like, oh my gosh, first of all, I'm not alone or weird because I'm having some issue because maybe people don't speak up because they think they're the only one, you know, having a problem. So where do they even start or whatever? Mm -hmm. Who knows what people are thinking? So if someone's hearing this information though, and they're just now opening up to the idea of like things could be better. I mean, probably in any relationship, things could always be better if we're understanding how to make make sure we're catering to our own needs and understanding how to help other people with their needs like what are, what are some first steps i guess to help people start yeah well i'm worried that people might have just heard me say that bad sex is not a good relationship to stay in a long-term committed relationship but that doesn't mean we can't change that 80 percent. so if you're in the deciding mm. factor of am i going to stay in this relationship if the sex or the attraction or if that is not going well um i'm giving you permission to keep looking but most of my couples got into a relationship not realizing that would be a major factor and it is having an 80% drain and they have children and decades of history and now we're trying to correct it. And it's, it's very, mm. very flexible. There's a lot we can do to make mm -hmm. it better. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that. Like, I'm not saying yeah, like cool. jump ship, don't try, <laughs> but if you're in the deciding factor, you can jump ship. If you've got a commitment already and a history, there's so much that we can do to, mm. um, to make this go better. 
Yeah. Well, I definitely want people to feel hopeful in whatever, tra whatever trajectory they end up needing to head down. Um, so like, what are some of the, for like the ways that you start uncovering, like how do people art articulate the first thing they need to address? Cause maybe there is several layers and it, like, I think physical pain, I honestly jumping onto this call, mm -hmm. I had no specific agenda of what was going to happen. Cause I'm like, I bet I'm going to learn a whole bunch of things <laughs> and, um, physical pain, like that part of it could show up in a lot of different ways too. I am guessing mm -hmm. based on my own experience and things mm -hmm. that I've heard from friends, but like, is that usually the first type of thing that maybe people feel like something's wrong or I don't know, maybe that's not a great starting. I'm like, how do we figure out where, to, where, how to diagnose what's, what are the challenges so that we know mm -hmm. how to get people moving towards something better? Yeah. I think unfortunately when people end up in my office, there's been like years of difficulty. So it's, mm -hmm. um, that's a good question to be asking. You know, when you start to recognize either a there's pain or B I don't want to have sex like ever or C I am not climaxing. I don't even know what you're talking about. Or, um, hey, we are realizing we want a totally different sex life from each other. Or usually people end up in my office when there's been years of pain. And I think it's because they don't know where to go when it starts. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's what I've tried to do to build in my business is this this level of care that people need. So some people just need education. Some yeah. people just need to know what they don't know. And so that's why I'm like, okay, I'm just going to offer a free podcast. That's just health education. That's, Hey, none of us got this at home. None of us got this. If we attended a church, none of us got this from our school district. Here is what I didn't even know. I know for yeah. most people that can resolve a lot of things, not for everyone. So then like that yeah. next layer would be, you know, I'm offering um, these like groups and support groups where I give the education and I'm able to show up and give people support, validation and empathy and specific suggestions. And for some people that is enough. All these layers before we get to, oh my gosh, I need intensive therapy, which is also something mm -hmm. I offer, but I can only see so many people. Sure. Here in Idaho, in the Treasure Valley, we've got um, six certified sex therapists. Mm. The, and we've got maybe um, about that many, again, spread throughout the state. Mm. So, I mean, I've got a decent wait, waiting list. So oh, wow. that's been the trick for me is how do I help people knowing I have a limited number of hours a week and there's a limited number of us available in the state or in the country? Yeah. And for some people, education's enough. For others, they need education and support. For others, they need intensive therapy. And so I think that's just where you start and figure out, okay, I've got to get some education on this and see if it resolves. If it didn't resolve, okay, I need more. And you just kind of take that step deeper and deeper and deeper toward intensive therapy, but not everybody okay. needs it to resolve their issues. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Well, and I'm hoping that maybe some people are hearing this and realizing that there is, there is, you can ask for help or look for help. Like I, I didn't even think about it because maybe I am the only woman that's ever felt this way, but we're so used to enduring pain in general mm -hmm. that I just assumed 
that was something I just needed to live with. Like that is something that I carried with me for a very long time. And it didn't even occur to me to look and go, is there something I can be doing to help? Like I didn't, I wouldn't even have thought to address it because we're just so comfortable. I say we, I was so comfortable (laughs) just being uncomfortable just because I thought that was part of having that's part of it. A woman's body. I was like, I I guess certain things just are going to hurt for the rest of my life. (laughs) And a lot of our moms and aunts didn't know anything different. And so they perpetuated that, that uh, idea. When it comes to this issue, um, when, you know, you transition into a sexual adult or a sexual relationship with a partner and you start to notice something, I think my first advice would be like, don't assume time is going to fix it. Let's bring it into the room. Let's not keep it private. Let's not keep it hidden. Just be like, hey, I'm noticing I have pain with this or that or this. Or, hey, I was not having a good time when we're doing X, Y, Z. Or, hey, you know, and bring it into the room and not hope that time will make it better. Um, Mm. Because that's what I work through then in intensive therapy is the decades of resentment, the decades of arguments, the decades of hurt. And it would be so great if we could like take care of it up front. But none mm-hmm. of us got those messages. Nobody told you, Megan, it should not hurt. Never push through sexual pain. Stop. We've got to figure out a solution. We do not want to pair pain and sex because that will impact your desire. You know, if you get punched in the face every time you eat ice cream, you are not going to want ice cream. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It will start to, it will start to then work on your desire and your libido and you're not going to want to have sex if it hurts. Yeah. And so I'm just, you know, we all need to be sending that message that, um, to address things earlier than later Mm -hmm. that you're in really good company. Most people who are having difficulty are in really good company. There's a major percentage. What is it? I think it's like 65% of people at some time will experience sexual dysfunction. The majority Mm. of us, as we go Mm. from 15 to 95, we will have a sexual problem. Mm. Most of us will. We need to be able to talk about it. Mm. So start casting the vision of what success looks like when people are having, having some good things, some awareness, um, what does it do for them? How to like, yeah, like, I guess maybe that's two part. Let's start with like, what does it really look like when people are starting to experience success in this as they're tackling the challenge? Yeah, that's a good question because there's a universal argument. Well, not A lot of people have opinions about what is healthy sexually and what is unhealthy sexually. Okay. Okay. And so we have to start there of what is sexual health? What's our vision of sexual health? And for me, I'm rooted in the six principles of sexual health, which were given us to us uh, by the world health organization and Doug Braun Harvey's work has really streamlined it. So basically the World Health Organization in 2013 was like, hey, if we as a world, as globally want to prevent sexual harm, sexual pain and sexual trauma, these six things need to be in place for people Mm. who are engaging in sex. And so I start there. The first is consent. That needs to be consensual, free from coercion, free from verbal and emotional coercion. 
not just from physical force. So we start to talk about what really is consent. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of times people think that it operates differently when they're single and dating than when they're in a long-term committed relationship, that all of a sudden it's implied consent because we're committed to one another. And that can mm -hmm. get people in some really sticky situations. Yeah. So the first, that first principle is how are you practicing consent with each other? Um, the second is non-exploitation, which means it's just simply um, not using any form of power to get what we want sexually. You know, no, like I'm the breadwinner or but these are my needs, but that we meet mm. each other on a level of I'm no better than you and I'm no worse than you, but we're different and we need to figure this out without, mm. um, you know, I had a couple I worked with and it just broke my heart that she had to like earn all the furniture she wanted in her house through sexual standards that he put for her. Oof. You know? That's exploitation. Yeah. That's using power to get something that you want, financial power and his oh, position wow. in the house. That was not cool. Mm -hmm. The third is honesty that we need to be honest with one another in order for sex to go well. Honest if it hurt, honest about um, what it means to us. So one night stands in and of themselves are not harmful as long as both people know and are honest that this is just right now. It, when, you know, you're promised things or you believe, oh, this means he, they love me or this means we're going to be together. Um, then you start to get into some sexual harm, pain, trauma. You mm. could have that experience. Mm -hmm. So honesty is right up there as a necessary value. Um, honesty also about our desires like some of the weird stuff about us or our viewing habits you know those kinds of things that can get hidden in a relationship and then cause some pain once it's discovered if we're upfront about it it's going to go a lot better mm. um fourth is shared values meaning when i'm working with a couple i'm not trying to have them embrace my values that would be completely unethical but it's helpful in a committed partnership if those two people share similar values, it's going to go better. And mm. when I mean values, I'm not really talking about like um, behaviors. You know, some people will say, oh, this is a traditional value or this is a sexual value. Some people would say abstinence is a sexual value. And I'd say, oh, no, no, that's a behavior. That's something mm -hmm. you're, you know, when I'm talking about shared values, it's if one person values novelty really high and the other person novels um, consistency really high, it's going to show up in the bedroom and there's going to be a little bit of a problem. Mm. And so, you know, values research shows, I think, you know, when our prefrontal cortex starts to solidify around 25, we usually have four or five um, core values that lead us as a person. No, nope, nobody's are better than another's but they might be different. And so that mm. person who really values consistency and security might have a difficult time sexually with someone who really values spontaneity and novelty. Mm. So that's the fourth one is looking at, do we share some of these values and what would they look like in the bedroom? Mm. Um, the fifth is protection from STIs and any um, unwanted pregnancies, that that's a sexual health um, principle that mm -hmm. everyone, you know, deserves access to information that might impact our health. Mm -hmm. 
um, knowing how many partners someone has been with, knowing if they were using protection and being on the same page about family planning and um, physical health. And then the sixth is mutual pleasure, that this isn't one-sided. This isn't mm. something that gets done to someone. This isn't something that another owns the right to, even if the other person isn't having a good time. That in order to prevent, as a public health initiative, to mm. prevent sexual harm and sexual trauma, we need to prioritize mutuality, that there's mutual opportunity for pleasure in the experience. Mm. So I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for, but you said, where do I, I start? It. And I'm like, I start here. You know, yeah. start here is what we know needs to be present. And it's much more than consent. Consent's yeah. not enough. Consent's one of six things that we need as public health, um, as public health initiative, or as we uh, talk to our girlfriends, or we talk to our partners, or we talk to our kids, that we're letting them know these six things, if you're following these, are really going to prevent any trauma or harm. I can't promise you'll have a good time, but I can get pretty close to pr promising you're not going to be traumatized. <laughs> yeah. You know? Oof, which is, boy, we could all use a little less trauma in this world in general, especially around something that is such a, it could be a very fulfilling, delightful part of our lives when it feels healthy. I, this is magical. I hope that, um, if, if you were driving and listening to that part, rewind it and jot down those six things, because that really does bring a full scope of all of the different elements that I, I honestly, this is a lot of really great information for me. Like the, you hear about these different things separately as totally individual topics, you know, depending on where, who you're talking to and whatever facet of a relationship. And I think having these drive our health in the sexual space is so cool. Like this feels I know. really empowering. Most of us want that. Most of us are like, I want a healthy sexual relationship, but then it's like, well, define healthy. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know? So it's nice that the world health organization did some research, put these all together and was like, you guys, if, if we're, we're going to really prevent sexual trauma, sexual harm, sexual pain, if we can just get these six basics down in our yeah. public discourse. Oh, totally. Because I imagine everybody really being able to approach it from their individual perspective will help them know how to meet a partner in that conversation. Because then you really can see where things do line up or where there maybe needs to be some conversations. You know, and if, it shows I, I what's really, missing. Oh, ahead. for sure. I was just gonna say, ideally, it'd be great if everyone knew this before <laughs> they started uh, partnering up. Because there's so much, so much that goes unsaid. I think yeah. that's, I mean, I know that from my, my own experience in life and various uh, connections of in religious spaces and other communities that where it's not talked about until like you maybe mentioned something. And so someone else feels safe saying something. And then we sort of have conversations, but there's still sort of like this hush hush thing because by then we've already all fallen into this routine of just trying to get through, you know, it almost feels like a lot of our life then is um, tethered to like, well, now I'm, I'm here. And yeah. And, and you're trapped. talking about like having sexual, um, sexual endurance instead of mutual pleasure. Right. And so that yeah. isn't going to be sustainable or enjoyable in the long run. 
Um, And when we look at like what is offered most, um, if we've got a abstinence only based education in the public schools, which we do here in Idaho and in the state surrounding us, except for Washington and Oregon, um, that the sexual health unit consisted only of number five of how to prevent STIs. And, um, yeah. and we call them STIs now instead of STDs because yeah. they are, they're infections and they're all treatable. They're not diseases yeah. that are untreatable. Um, that was Thank part you for of clarifying the, that. I do remember yeah. hearing that, but this, some yeah. people may be hearing this for the first time because I do sometimes still hear people refer to them as STDs, but thank you for that. And that's what we were taught. And, but yeah. it adds to the fear of the language. It adds to, this can be really scary instead of most of these things are treatable, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's all we got in most of our education was how to prevent STIs and how pregnancy happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure when I was going to high school, if someone would have suggested that pleasure should be a part of the education, people would have freaked out oh yeah but it's necessary for it to be healthy it must be pleasurable for both people in order for it to be healthy and i wish all those teenage girls and teenage boys would have walked away with that understanding of oh i need to make sure my partner's having a good time this isn't all about me having a good time this is like a co-created mutual um experience or should be if it's going to be healthy yeah. So on that note, because now we're, you know, we're parents, we've got, there's still a lot of people our age who are not comfortable in this dialogue yet. Hopefully this uh, starts opening up the comfort level for people who are hearing this in a new way or for the first time. So as we take accountability for ourselves and like, I mean, I really want to revisit some of these things because I feel like I've grown and I've definitely done a lot of exploring of listening to all sorts of books and podcasts Mm -hmm. and things and, and trying to really be confident in understanding what I want and knowing Mm -hmm. myself um, as an individual. And there's still some stuff that I'm like, oh, I got, I want to revisit. So if people are, first of all, taking the accountability for ourselves, really being honest about what's happening, what we're, where we feel like we could maybe seek some support and additional information, then like, I feel like it's up to us to also help educate our kids Mm -hmm. and, and invite them into this understanding from a very young age. I mean, it's, is that, is that where we're going? I mean, can we take it there for a minute of like, it feels like this is the type of thing we can can break cycles. Let's fill the gaps. And I think most of us want to break a cycle, but we don't know how. Yeah. You know, most of us were like, ah, I want to give my kids something different than what I was given. Um, Mm -hmm. And, but I don't really know how, how do you be sex positive? But I also want them to be careful and smart and wise. And um, I think a lot of these conversations can be taken in a non-sexual space first when they're really young, before you bring them to another to a sexual space where you talk about Mm. when we play a game, we want it to be mutual. You know, am I playing this game in a way that lets everyone else at the table have a good time? Or am I playing this game in a way that makes people have a crappy time? You know, talking about mutual pleasure as a family value, Um, talking about honesty as a value that I know Mm. it's uncomfortable to bring this up, but the sooner you bring it up, the more likely we are 
to fix it or to deal with it, you know, or thank you so much for being honest and bringing that sexual question to me. I'm so glad you just asked me what a uh, vulva was. I'm so glad you just asked me what um, a penis looks like, you know, and thanks for being honest that that's something you'd like to learn about or a non-exploitation of, oh, so when that kid at school was manipulating you, that's called exploitation. They, he was trying to use the power from being bigger than you to get the ball mm. you had. Do you know what that's called? That feels crappy. Doesn't that feel crappy? Mm. What are, what's our form of power? Do we ever use it in a way that's selfish? Ah, we don't want to do that in our family. We don't want to use our power in a selfish way. And consent, you know, um, yeah. this is going much better for our generation than it did for us of, no obligation hugs, no obligation. Oh yeah. No, yeah. there's no obligation for affection. It should be felt. If you feel warm towards someone and want to touch them, that's what we're looking for. If you feel cold and feel like you have to touch someone, that's mm -hmm. not great. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and even practicing that, um, I've had to get real good at that with a child I have that's got some sensory issues and to take mm -hmm. it seriously, not personally, like I'll be, is today a hug day? Oh, no, it's not a hug day. All right. How about a high five? And I'll, I'll talk like that with my kids of yeah. would a hug feel good or would something else feel better? And yeah. that's letting, letting my children get used to advocating for themselves about what they want. And when that isn't learned before we enter a sexual space, it's not going to show up in a sexual space. If we can't yeah. say what we would prefer, if we can't say how we're actually feeling outside of the bedroom, we're not somehow magically going to be able to show up in the bedroom and say, hold on. You know how sometimes I get that trauma thing and I just shut down. It's happening right now. Like mm -hmm. we need to be able to say that inside mm -hmm. and outside of the bedroom. Mm. Oh man, this is so good. Yeah. And that I feel like, yeah, that's it. Everyone like really everyone needs to figure out what is a way that they can integrate these things in whatever way feels comfortable that's outside of that space first. Um, Cause yeah, we have so much, so much learning and growing. And I even like in learning a lot of things that I want to help my kids with. Um, I, I remember it finally dawning on me several years ago now that like I instinctively usually want to hug people just cause I, yeah. I'm, I'm a hugger. And then I was mm -hmm. like, okay, wait, wait, wait. So then I've really started to shift and I'm like, I need to make sure that I have permission in the mm -hmm. space of like not just being a hugger or I can identify myself as that's what I do now is then like, if I'm parting ways with someone, sometimes it just naturally, you know, I meet a new lady and we go to mm -hmm. coffee and whatever. <laughs> and then we naturally both go into the hug and then we kind of still talk about it. But I feel like it is becoming more uh, prevalent as that awareness comes up too. Is like, are we going in for a handshake, a hug, a mm -hmm. high five? Like, even offering alternatives to adults has really helped me heighten my awareness yeah. of how to make sure my kids are feeling like they get to speak up and interact in a way that makes them feel empowered and comfortable. Yeah. And a way that we can promote that is by saying thank you when they do practice consent with us. You know, when someone says, I'm not really a hugger, be like, thank you for telling me that. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. And yeah. if our kids get used to us saying, thank you for telling me that, I want you to feel comfortable with me. Their red flags will shoot up the first time they're mm. with a partner and they say, I'm not loving this. And they say, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that should yeah. feel so wrong to them because they yeah. are so used to us as parents saying, thank you for telling me about that. I want you to be comfortable. 
we can high five mm. instead of come on don't you love me oh gross you know <laughs> yeah oh my gosh yeah there's so many good things um thank you for bringing such uh like tangible steps like this is exactly what i always hope for is that people can hear something, maybe get a new perspective on something that they are curious about or totally oblivious to. I mean, it's any range of things, right? And um, to really have some steps of things that they can start considering today. Like mm -hmm. this episode feels like a great journal prompt for you to spend <laughs> some time exploring with yourself. Maybe if you're in a partnership, mm -hmm. um, encourage the the conversation around that too. Mm -hmm. I, I always, uh, talk to my, my clients when I do a, you know, like improv workshop, obviously you probably know I teach improv workshops. Yes. yes. And versus yeah. But, and sometimes they like now when they have the new awareness, they will often go, well, now what do I do about my partner at home that doesn't know the difference between yes. And, and yeah, but then I'm like, you get to just enthusiastically tell them what you learned, how you perceived it, how it works. Mm -hmm. And then we get to start laying the groundwork. So I feel like this is a total, probably totally the same thing is like, if someone really wants their partner to engage in this kind of self-awareness too, it's more like we get to start with us. Yeah. Share, and it's totally yeah, oh, yeah. Like, uh, I didn't make these up. Uh, <laughs> I would feel really uncomfortable if I was had made something up and was saying, here, follow this, right? Um, like this yeah. is rooted in some research. This is rooted in a lot of things. And it's very Googleable. Be like, let's, let's, let's Google that. There's lots of podcasts out there, lots of articles out there written. If you want to understand it in like a deeper way, just those six principles of sexual health. Um, I love it. If you want to share it with your partner, you can be like, I didn't even know this was a thing. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. And so, yeah, I encourage any of you listeners out there. And if they do want to engage uh, with you, though, because you do have mm -hmm. some offerings and clearly your passion is to help people find joy and health and balance mm -hmm. and fulfillment in this area. Um, so talk to me a little bit about where where people can find you. What are some of your next steps for people who are thinking, "Ooh, I want to go. I want to be on Team Cami and figure out my <laughs> stuff, <laughs> stuff in her space. Yeah. So like I said, like I've got a podcast called sexual, um, sex therapy 101. It's on all platforms. I've been doing it since about 2019. My main goal there really is to just offer people the education that we didn't get. Um, I don't run it in the summer. It's about to pick back up now, but there's a bunch of episodes there that are either interviews or lectures or, I've got a lot of book reviews. That's one of my favorite things to do once a month is I pick up, I read a Ooh. sexual health book and then I review it and rate it of what I thought was great, what wasn't so great. Cool. Um, and then um, the next level would be, yeah, check out some of my support groups. Um, they're each six set weeks. So there's like a curriculum for sex, six weeks that has education and then some group support, really small online private help as a way to get access to help maybe while you're on a waiting list with someone or to see if that's enough for you, it's a much more affordable option. And then I, and then I do offer intensive therapy for individuals and couples facing yeah. sexual issues. I love it. Thanks for recapping that. We'll definitely have links to uh, connecting to all of those in the show notes. So make sure you check it out. And I know you mentioned uh, kind of as we wrap things up here, I know you mentioned at the beginning that there's kind of a disparity between the number of people who are in your line of work mm -hmm. and the volume of need 
that is there. So for, I, I don't know how many therapists I have in my listenership, um, but are you seeing like among peers, like that this conversation is like, Hey, we need more people in this space. Is it like, yeah, they're like more I, of a hot topic. Well, I have no room for competition in my life. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. jump in, get in here. If you're a therapist and you have an, yes, let's do this. We need you. There will be the work. Um, and part of that is I also offer continuing ed credits, um, and courses for therapists. So I have two courses. One is sexual health competency for the average mental health professional level mm -hmm. one and level two, trying to really up Idaho's competency in sexual issues. Um, and, and that leads me into that other um, passion project I have, which is Idaho Sexual Health Professionals, which is an association for urologists, OBs, physical uh, therapists, uh, mental health therapists, social workers, every discipline who would deal with someone who had a sexual, sexual concern. We have an, now an association here in Idaho with an annual conference and regular newsletter information. And just I want... I don't want a 19 year old girl to have the same experience I had. I want people to be able to go to the people they trust and be mm. able to get adequate care. And as a rural state, most states need more help, but as a rural state, we really, really have room to grow. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like it. And I hope, I hope we get, keep going, things going in the right direction. Thank you for doing the challenging yet obviously like really important work that is it can bring so much joy and satisfaction into our lives and so i am so glad that we finally were able to connect we had a little bit of bebopping around to get on the schedule and so i really really appreciate you making the time uh to join me on the podcast and thank you for all of the work that you do appreciate you thanks for having me i've loved watching you build i'm just so inspired by how you build and it's, it's been beautiful. I've been watching you. Too, I love so. that. Well, thank you. You're amazing. Thank you. All right. And thank you listeners for tuning into another episode of the, I hardly know her podcast produced by Jeanette, my friend here and cohort with improv team culture. If any of you are out there listening and would like some additional tools for leadership communication or public speaking, you can learn more at improvteamculture.com. We want to help you to share your stories, connect better, uh, and communicate clearly with joy and enthusiasm with our favorite tool, improvisation. And we thank you so much for your time. And we can't wait to have you again in the future on another episode of I Hardly Know Her. <laughs> oh, I just made up a new jingle. All right. Take care, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the I Hardly Know Her podcast. For information about leadership workshops, public speaker training, and all things kooky Megan, check out improvteamculture.com. We'll catch you next time.